BookStew viewers and listeners. I put my glasses on because I cannot believe that in this episode, I'm gonna be featuring an author's two books. This has never happened before since uh, the BookStew started in 2014. So first, I would like to introduce you to my guest, author Kristen Wireman. Hello, Kristen. Hello, busy Kristen. Hi, Eileen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And Kristen, the two books I have of yours are very different. They're two novels, and one was published in 2022 and one in 2023. The first one is called Buck's Pantry, and it's kind of a, it's an interesting, I would say a Texas novel because you feel like the things that happen in this, in this story could really only happen in Texas. Um, and Buck's Pantry is the place in the town where everybody goes, There's every, everything is at Buck's Pantry, everyone goes to Buck's Pantry, um, so it's kind of the center of town and where it's where uh, three different worlds collide in a strange incidence of um, mental illness, work ambition, and uh, marital frustration, I guess is, is how I would term it. So um, you're, you had, did you grow up in Texas, is that right? I did grow up in Texas. So you don't, uh, you don't appear to have an accent. Now you live in San Francisco, right? I live in San Francisco. I left Texas and went to the East Coast and then came out West. So um, it'll come out at points in time, but um, a lot of it's been smoothed out until I go back to Texas and then it, it sort of blooms pretty strongly. Do you, how, how do you feel about um, the way Texas is seen throughout the country now, maybe because of the government not as positive as the image we all used to have. Um, how, do you, how do you feel? Uh, <laughs> that's a weighty question. Um, but a lot of what I think ended up coming out in, in Buck's Pantry, you know, I think, um, I think a few things. I think, you know, the politics there are, are, are not my politics and, um, and it wasn't a place I felt like I could stay. Um, but at the same time, there there are some beautiful aspects to the people there that I think get very overlooked, and and I hope, in some ways, that these book that the book can sort of shine a light on that. There's a neighborliness there, there is a generosity there, and um, that I really haven't encountered anyplace else. And I just, I think so often that just gets overshadowed by sort of bigger, more you know, giant issues. And um, so as a, and I, I certainly did not intend to do that when I, when I set out to write the novel, but that began to sort of, it, it sort of became a love letter to Texas. Um, I, I, I hope that at least that's how it felt to me and I hope that's how it's perceived, if that makes sense. Well, the, the, I, I agree, the beautiful part of this Texas town did really come out and the kind of confusion that the character who is coming in from New York, who gets stuck in this convenience store with uh, a mentally ill person and a person who's struggling with three kids and uh, politics of uh, someone who's running for office that she is okay with and then not thrilled with. I thought um, the, the portrayal of everybody together, so um, you know, there are scenes that take place outside Buck's Pantry that lead into Buck's Pantry, but the whole, the scene in Buck's Pantry with the conflicts that were going on was very tense, 
but you really um, could perceive the humanity of everyone who was involved and the people who were attempting the rescue. And it was just, um, I, I really, I really, really enjoyed it. And I like the setting and I love the cover. Both, both, both of your books have, have great covers, but, it, but this one is 2022. And if you don't mind, I'm gonna focus more on your other novel, which, um, which I really related to. It's called This Time Could Be Different and it's out in September. And this is basically a work novel. And what we were talking about is that uh, during, since COVID, I think there is a dearth of work novels because people don't go into work like they used to anymore. But this takes place in a bank and it's, uh, there are two best friends who come, Madeline and Emma, who come into the bank um, at the same time and become best friends there's still an undercurrent of competitiveness there because you know they're both trying to climb the ladder and they're very aware of each other and they do help each other out but um then something happens to madeline so do you want to tell us a little bit about because i'm going to ask you to do a reading and maybe explain a little bit about where madeline is at in this section of the book Certainly, um, and, and thank you just for all your kind words, um, just especially back to Buck's Pantry. The, the things that you pulled out of it were sort of what I hope people would see, so that, that really means a lot. Um, but yes, yeah, switching gears to this time could be different, which comes out in September. Um, so Madeline is, uh, you know, she is someone who has worked, she's in her late 40s and she has spent her entire adult life focused on her career and was very clear about that. And she you know, is, is sort of finding herself in the position she's always aspired to and, you know, suddenly it's not making her happy. In fact, it's it's making her pretty miserable. And, um, you know, it's sort of about that, um, which is, you know, I think fiction's a, a beautiful thing because, you know, you get to create whatever story you want, but, you know, I think it's also richer when we draw from at least, you know, feelings we've had before. And, um, you know, in my old life, I worked in the corporate world and sort of find, found myself in that place of, you know, on paper, I had my dream job. It was everything I'd wanted, and you know, instead of feeling full, I felt quite empty and um, and frustrated. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and then it's so so that is is sort of the the crux of the novel, if you will, and then sort of how she grapples with that. And she, you know, she begins to really try to be different, while her friend Emma, you know, is sort of doubling down on on you know the path they've always been on, and. You know, both of those characters sort of, you know, I could relate to Emma, you know, in all the years that I chose to sort of, you know, keep focused on my career where that made sense. And then, you know, I, I really kind of had a crisis of self as I was trying to figure out what to do next, you know, similar to what Madeline does. So so that's sort of the, the setup for the book. Okay, so um, we're going to ask, I'm going to ask you to read the part where Madeline is just starting to go to a counselor. Um, which sure. she has not been really eager to do and is very suspicious of the counselor, isn't trusting. So I think it, uh, well, I'll let you read it, then we can talk about it afterwards. Thanks. Okay, wonderful. So this is, um, Olivia is the, is the counselor, and so this is um, Madeline sitting in her office. Olivia placed her multi-ringed fingers together, sighing as they glided from the bridge of her nose to her mouth. Is there something you believe some fundamental perception about yourself that might give rise to this feeling. Madeline felt her brows pinched together. Olivia smiled. Each of us lives by a set of stories that tells us who we are in the world. They tell us what we're supposed to do if we want to be, she made air quotes, good, what we deserve, what's safe to have and what is not. 
Madeline's expression did not change. I know, Olivia's laughter tinkled like a little wind chime. It seems like a strange idea, but it's quite simple. We're shaped by the stories we're told about ourselves when we're young. As we age, we have the chance to decide whether those narratives really fit or whether we want something different. But changing often requires us to, Olivia seemed to search for words, untangle ourselves from the old script. Madeline blinked and worried about what was coming next. Don't get caught up in the theory, Olivia made a shooing gesture with one hand, her bracelets clinking. Just ask yourself the question, what do you believe that would cause you to feel terrified of not being in this job? Ask myself. As with most of Olivia's weird suggestions, Madeline's first reaction was, I'd rather not. This sounded even wackier than meditation. Could you try, Olivia asked. If you don't like it, stop, Madeline grimaced. Do you want to remain terrified of doing anything that doesn't please the people you work for? Steel was creeping into Olivia's voice. Because if you're terrified of not having this job, that's the position you're putting yourself in. That's not the nightmare of Steve placing the ring on Madeline's finger blazed through her mind so intensely that she couldn't finish. Try. If you don't like it, we'll stop. Irritated because Olivia was so good at suggesting things in irrefutable ways, Madeline closed her eyes. She asked herself the question. Nothing happened. Madeline took three deep breaths. Her annoyance began to slip away. She asked herself the question again. She went in and let her mind be still. An idea shimmered. My job needs to be, Madeline said, unable to hide her astonishment, painful. The understanding was so startling that for a second she forgot to be self-conscious. Somehow I believe that if my job isn't painful or difficult, then it's not. Olivia waited. Madeline felt like the pressure in her body was changing. Thoughts were skittering through her mind, but they weren't making sense. Yet there was a clarity just beyond them. Meaningful or worthwhile? The whole process was leaving Madeline a bit dazed. That it doesn't count somehow? Keep going. If work isn't awful or a struggle, Madeline opened her eyes. I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. I feel like I'm, Olivia waited, wrong. How bizarre. Why would I think that? Right as the question left Madeline's mouth, images began marching through her mind. Her grandfather drilling her at high school swim practice until she could barely lift her arms, his gravelly voice commanding, if it doesn't hurt, you're not trying. His disappointed gaze whenever she failed to place in a meet. Another picture. Her grandmother's answer when Madeline asked to stop playing the violin. You don't have to like it, dear. The point is to be good at it. Memory after memory made itself known. Okay, Madeline said after pulling herself back to the present. Do I need to tell you about everything I've just remembered? Not unless you want to. Your awareness of what happened is all that matters. Madeline allowed the recollections to recede. So how do I... She wasn't sure exactly what she wanted to do. Change your story, Olivia asked. Madeline nodded. Olivia smiled. I just think that is one of the most remarkable uh, breakthroughs I've ever read in a book, fiction or nonfiction. Um, the therapist is really very skilled, um, and and Madeline's relationship with her is really very. Uh, it's kind of funny in a way. It's 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 great, but it's it's very deep it's um each session so there are quite a few sessions in the book and each session the olivia opens things up a little bit more and a little bit more and each session madeline is like so reluctant she's so 
closed up. And she, you know, she had lots of trauma in her childhood and she's been able to compartmentalize it to the point where she can avoid thinking about it completely. So I think um, your portrayal of Olivia and her skill in being able to um, really help Madeline come to a much happier place is so gratifying as a reader. It really is, because you can see it's not easy. It doesn't, like Olivia doesn't snap her fingers and go, oh, when I say count to three, you're going to be well. You know, she, she really, they both really have to work at it. And I thought that was, to me, that was just one of the best parts of the book. Well, thank you for that. Um, everything you said, just thank you for all of those pieces of it. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I what I realized pretty quickly, um, and I actually wrote this time first. It was the first one I wrote. Um, it's the second one coming out. Um, but you know that what you said is sort of what I realized was the story I wanted to tell. You know, the, the change is possible. I think a lot of times we're led to believe that it's not, or that if you reach a certain point in your life, it's not. And and I haven't found that to be true. You know, but it's also not easy. And, you know, when you really are trying to shift, you know, sort of big things that come from those kinds of past traumas, um, you know, you kind of have to deal with all of the, um, you know, you got to walk through all the pain and, you know, everything you've compartmentalized and the old feelings. And so, you know, that sort of (laughs) those two things, you know, I think often we're told it's not possible or we're told it's easy. And, you know, I, I sort of found the opposite of those two things to be true and sort of putting them together, I realized was, you know, sort of the whole point of the book. And also, I think one of the points of the book is definitely um, a horrible work situation caused by horrible management, which, you know, most of us who had corporate jobs have lived through this. And I think we just another thing i really enjoyed about the book is that madeline just kind of and emma both kind of just expected that that would happen they didn't really have expectations of having good managers they just had expectations of being able to deal with bad managers maybe work around them get through them hope that something happens to them and uh and they have no expectations of having Uh, humane smart bosses and I think these days now you wrote this first was this written what was the COVID status when you when you wrote this it was before COVID I um I wrote the first draft of this in um to in late 2016 so it's before COVID I actually had to go back and touch up a couple of things to make it appropriate for post-COVID but you, um, I've, you know, I've been asking my, a lot, most of my authors, and uh, this was for people who had written their books before COVID, how are you going to deal with COVID? And I was, uh, I was very fearful that COVID was going to be this humongous boulder in the road for all these writers whose books I love reading because, you know, you can't get around it. Are you going to climb on top of it? Are you going to burrow under it? Are you going to ignore it? Are you going to set every book in 2018? You know, how are you going to deal with it? But you dealt with it very lightly here, and it was not really an issue. But I think maybe if you wrote it in the middle of COVID, you well, these are two executives, so it's not like they're going to be fighting to work from home or anything, um, even though 
everybody fought to work from home for a while. But um, let's talk about Emma because her position is is different, even though they eventually end up dealing with the same horrible managers. Yeah, and I loved your observation that you that you made a moment ago. That was such an insightful one, and I hadn't really thought in those terms that they just don't, you know, expect. I mean, you sort of they go into work every day bracing for sort of what, you know, what, what, what awful thing is going to happen today. And that, you know, just becomes the status quo. So, um, so back to your question about Emma. So Emma, you know, very much for me, and, and I, and I, I had the two characters going in. I, I knew I, you know, I was sort of thinking of this sort of like sliding doors because, you know, so often, you know, once, once I made the decision that I really wanted to be different, you know, and realized that work was not sort of the dream job I thought it was, at least for me. It's different for everybody. Um, you know, I sort of looked back at all the times when that idea was sort of creeping forward and I and I just wasn't ready for it. It wasn't the right time. And so that, you know, that was very much Emma. And I, I think that there are a lot of, or I've had early readers who, you know, relate to Emma. I mean, she's, you know, she's, she's great. She's a, you know, she's a, she's a good manager. She tries to treat her people well. She cares about her job. But you know, that sort of sliding doors aspect of when, you know, all the times I made the decision to stay versus, you know, when you make the decision to, to do something different, that to me was very interesting. And then what sort of built on top of that was, you know, wow, how it really began to impact the friendship, you know, because, you know, whereas they had been so t closely aligned, you know, now, you know, it's just everything becomes different. So, you know, I think Emma does a masterful job. I think, I mean, I hope, you know, for me, she was, you know, there can be, you know, wonderful bright spots in the corporate world. Um, but, you know, she has to make some decisions that chip away a little bit at, you know, who she thinks she is. And, you know, there are these aspects of being a tough and good leader that, you know, sort of leave her feeling pretty slimy at the end of the day. And, I think that's also an aspect of, of staying there. I think they also had uh, both had supportive uh, partners, which was which was very different partners and supportive in different ways. I mean, a partner saying to you, you know, we're okay financially, so if you just want to quit, just quit. Like that's really not an answer to anything. That's nice. It, it's nice to know, but. Um, it's not exactly what you're looking to hear because I think fighting inside of Madeline was, you know, her self-worth if she if she left her job and all her baggage that she was carrying from childhood. But it's really not easy to walk away from something that you've invested so much time and so much of your personality in. So I think she was very, very courageous. Um, and I guess that is a little spoiler to say that she walks away, but she kind of walked away close to the beginning of the book. So I'm not, I'm not really, and I'm not giving away what happens uh, further down the line. But one scene that I really loved with Emma, um, so, you know, there's this big conference that all the, that, you know, if, <laughs> if you're an executive in the right position, you're invited to come to this, you know, and it's one of your portrayal of it, the tedium of dragging off to these corporate conferences where you have to wear shoes that pinch and you know you have to sit through interminable sessions that are just beyond boring and Emma has actually a, a fantastic session with the CEO which you know nobody <laughs> expects and people who were around her were kind of all falling out going because the CEO asks you know just 
I think just to be a jerk, asks this question that was a gotcha question like, you know, what was yep. your percentage of blah blahs over the last, you know, 17 months? And Emma is definitely a stats and numbers person, and she's able to whip it right out at him. And everybody, and he does the same thing to another guy in the room, and the guy just is like, uh, uh, well, I think, uh, so I thought that was, that was an excellent way to handle Emma's still heading up while Madeline is still figuring out what to do. Oh, thank you for that, and I, I'm, I'm so, all the things you're saying just they, they mean so much um you know because it, it all makes sense when you're doing it and then you start to put it out in the world and you have these moments of thinking you know <laughs> oh goodness um so thank you for that and um yeah you know i i had a lot of fodder to draw from um and i was definitely perhaps working through a little bit of therapy on my own of just you know the corporate world and i had some fun with a lot of those scenes but you know, I do, I had many moments and, and, and nobody is based on anyone in this. I mean, everything's just, you know, based on bits and pieces. But I do remember having several moments when like, you know, there would be this leader that, you know, was super polished and said all these great things. And, you know, you just think they're wonderful from a distance and then you get close to them and, you know, it's just sort of like, wow, you know, do I, you know, can I never talk to this person again? Or, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had those moments uh, not and more than one time. And, um, you know, it just... I think it just sort of goes into, you know, in order to succeed and there can be great, there are great people, you know, at these companies, you know, who, who are like Emma and who are sort of a bright spot, but there's a lot of people that, you know, to succeed, they just sort of, you know, they become these things. And there's, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that is just, you know, so contrary to the shiny surface that um, you see from a distance, if that makes sense. I also thought um, Madeline, and Emma both, but especially Madeline, did a really great job at working with uh, someone who reported to her who was being treated unfair. And I can't, you know, this has happened. I've seen it so many times. So there's an executive and there's someone uh, he, dealing with that executive. And for some reason, the person speaking and what they need to say doesn't put the executive in the best light. And the executive holds, so they must have, you know, this <laughs> this whiteboard of grudges, and they put a bad mark next to your name. And then, no matter what you do after that, you it's it's just it's going to stop you, and you just have to kind of come to realize it. And Madeline was the manager of this person who was in that position with her boss, and she just went and fought for him, and fought for him, and fought for him. So I thought that was another really positive aspect of corporate life that I don't think you see very much, but I was it made me kind of hopeful to think that if people would read this, they would maybe think about um, doing, doing good for the people who, who report to you and who need you to stand up for them. I thought that was great. Oh, I'm so glad, and I, um, and I, I you know, it, because that that is true too as much as all the you know the negative things are true that's true too there's lots of people and i i had managers like that and i you know certainly tried to be a manager like that and um you know that that exists too and i uh, i agree with you it's a bright spot and i i, I did want to you know try to <laughs> make it balanced um even though it was kind of fun to it's always fun to be able to you know poke fun at the corporation versus you know a person um, but I'm glad you saw that too, because, you know, the reality is, is my corporate career, you know, it, it did change my life. It's what gave me independence. It's what, you know, allowed me to move out of Texas. It's what allowed me to move away from, you know, a 
family that, you know, wasn't particularly healthy. I mean, so there is a place for all of this, you know, and, and I'm so glad you brought out that positive point because I, I tried to make those in the books too, um, you know, because that's just as real as the other. Well, I think you do your balance between skewering what needs to be skewered and uh, showing how things could be done if, you know, if we had a better uh, workplace. The balance was very good because, you, you know, you, I suppose uh, depending on how you left a job, um, I was laid off uh, after 20 years and a day. And in fact, the Ooh. day after I was laid off, I got a letter from the CEO saying, congratulations, you hit your 20th year. So it was very, very silly. Oh. And the, the worst part was that I loved my job. I loved oh. my job. I swear I'd still be there today. So I was very distraught that, um, yeah. that nobody understood how much the job meant to me. And you know, it's eight years or nine years later, so I'm, you know, I've certainly recovered from it. But I think um, in those prime working years, and that's another whole thing that's po like post-COVID, people, I don't think being in your prime working years matters as much as it used to, or maybe it's just what I'm reading. I mean, I think people are much more intent to have a life without, you know, an hour long commute each way, not having to miss your children's activities, just having to miss having time to yourself and how, you know, then uh, these executives started saying, well, it's time for everybody to get back to the office now because their offices are empty and they're spending all this money on real estate that nobody's using and they don't know what to do about it. Not, or because they're insane micromanagers who have to have everybody in, you know, visual range all the time. But I, I think it would be interesting to see a post-COVID novel that deals with the workplace and deals with people saying, no, I'm, you know, you let me work remotely, I'm not coming back. I agree. I completely agree with that. And I, and I do think it is very different. And, um, and I, I did when I was going back to at least, you know, do a few touches for COVID. I, I struggled with a little bit of that because I did feel like, you know, the world's a bit different now. Um, like you said, not necessarily at their levels, but um, no, I, I agree with you. I think it's changing and I, I think it's a change for the better. I think, you know, like any changes, the pendulum sort of swings maybe a little far this way and then, you know, eventually it comes back into a different state of balance. But, you know, certainly I look back at the way that I started and, and what I'm hearing as you started and, you know, just, you know, 10 hours at the office or 12 hours a day and, you know, in your seat at seven and not leaving till seven and, you know, no breaks, you know, just eating, inhaling something at your desk, you know, that, that, that's not healthy. It's just not. And, um, you know, you pour so much of yourself into it and, um, you know, then it, that becomes sort of part of your identity and part of what your normal is. So, so I agree with you that it's changing. I think that's for the better. And I, th I think it is going to be interesting to see stories that sort of incorporate that change as well. So how did you migrate from your corporate life into becoming a writer? Had you always been a writer and a reader or... I had always been a reader, and um, and there was a moment when I was I was reading Stephen King's book on writing on the titles on writing, and um, when he I, I was starting to I'll, I'll get to a minute to the writing part of it. I was just starting to sort of feel out the idea, and he said, you know, writers are readers, and I thought, well, I just consume novels like candy. Um, I'd always been a reader, but you know, writing wasn't. Um, and you know, I so I left the corporate world. I um, I I left. I quit, um, but I. 
my organization had been sort of pushed into, um, we, we could spend the entire hour talking about it, so we won't do that. But, I, you know, I was sort of pushed into, I was backed into a corner and I knew that, you know, the job was already so painful and, you know, was taking all of my time. And I, you know, I was traveling all the time and it was just wearing on me and on my husband. And I, I just, there was a change that they were sort of forcing down my throat that I knew was just going to make it unbearable. So I left. So it was, um, it was not exactly like your situation, but it was very abrupt. And so then I found myself, you know, for the first time in my life, you know, and my husband was doing well and I had savings and it was sort of this, wow, you know, you could do whatever you wanted because working for me, you know, back, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to college, but you know, I, I had family members depending on me. I mean, it was about find a job. It was never about what do you want to do? What do you want to be? That never factored into the equation. And so I, I sort of found myself, you know, wow, I, you know, I had this ability to, you know, wow, I could do anything. And, you know, what came up was a blank wall of just, you know, and, and that was so upsetting to realize, wow, I, you know, I have the flexibility to, you know, do something that I don't, you know, just doesn't turn my insides and, you know, through a meat grinder every day. And I, I didn't know what that was. And so I really, you know, it took me a while and um, I was reading all kinds of books and, you know, so much of what I was reading was like, do something creative, try to get your mind flowing in different ways. And that was kind of how the writing started. But once I started and the novels, I just, it, it, it was like coming home and, um, you know, it took a while, but, but that's how I ended up there. So certainly not by any kind of a direct route. That's, that's really amazing. I have to tell you that um, of writers I've asked that question to, most of them claim to have come out of the womb with a pencil and a piece of paper. You know, they always wrote, they uh, had millions of short stories sitting around in their drawer that they'd pull out every once in a while, or, you know, when they were in, or they went to, you know, an MFA program in college or something. I think it's, I mean, have you ever told Stephen King <laughs> the impact that his book had on you? I bet he would love to hear that. Oh, well, I'd love the chance to tell him, but <laughs> well, maybe someday. we'll send him this episode of the show so he'll know. But I think he's um, he's such an interesting character because here's someone who was just you know in Schlockland for so long, uh, according to the critics, and at some point, and I don't know which novel it, or set of novels it was, it all turned and he became the masterful Stephen King and the respected Stephen King. And you know his mind must have been blown by it, but I'm thinking of your mind. So you know you always love to read, but when you sit down to actually write, it actually like it happens. Were you like shocked? I was shocked. I, you know it was it was I couldn't believe I was trying it. I, I mean I remember when the idea came to me. I was playing golf with my husband, my stepson, and the idea came, and I just you know I was so at that point it had been I'd probably been out of. I'd probably been about six months since I'd stopped working. Oh, sorry. No, this was like a year later. And um, anyway, I, you know, I was just like this idea of the novel and I, it just came and it was so interesting, but it just felt, you know, it, it felt wrong somehow, I, you know, like, yeah, I could never do it. And I, I remember the next day was a Monday and I sat down and I wrote a scene and it was Madeline talking to, I mean, they didn't have names yet, but it was Madeline talking to Olivia, her therapist, this woman talking to her therapist. Um, you know, and it just, you know, the next day I reread it and I didn't hate it and I made some revisions and I wrote another scene and then it, like I said, it was like coming home. It just, I'd never, you know, it was, it's not, not as, you know, but it was sort of like, you know, realizing my husband was the person I wanted to be with. It was, you know, like realizing San Francisco was the place I wanted to live. It, it was just this 
feeling of coming home. But but no, I did not. I can look back now when I was really little and see that I you know played around with it. You know, but there were, and 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 I did write a short story when I was younger. But you know, all of that was sort of just buried under things that were happening at home, and it it just kind of got locked away. And um, no, it was not something. If someone had told me you know, before a day before it happened, you know, you're going to write a novel, I would have burst out laughing and said, there's absolutely no way. I just I now, think that's such an amazing story. So did you have doubts along the way or big doubts? Oh, huge doubts. <laughs> yes. Oh, I still do. Um, I thought it was going to be, I thought it would get easier. And, um, you know, it's, um, I did, I found, a, you know, I found a really good editor early on and, um, and, and, and I was talking to her, you know, it was sort of just an aside and she's like, well, let me read some pages. And, you know, and she really, she gave me some pointers. She, she absolutely changed the way that I write. You know, she told me some things that I think people probably learned in creative writing 101, which I never <laughs> took a creative writing class, but, but she also saw some promise in it. And, um, yeah, so it, it, it still feels shocking to me. I mean, I, I, you know, I walk by, I have my two books sitting on a desk and I walk by them some days and I just look at them and think, I can't believe you know, I can't believe these exist. And I appreciated your comment about the covers. Um, Spark Press does that. And I feel like they do such a beautiful job. Um, my publisher has a wonderful design team. But yeah, I still look at it and just can't believe. And then sometimes I read it and I'm just like, wow. So, I mean, I just can't um, believe I did it. So what's, I, I, I just think it's a wonderful story. It makes me very happy to hear it. What's, oh, um, what's next? Do you have something bubbling around in your head? Because, you know, this is two books, two years, that's a, that's pretty aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, you know, it was, um, I'm so happy that it, it worked out this way. Like I said, this time was actually the first book I wrote. Then while I was querying for that, I ended up writing Buck's Pantry. And at the time I just couldn't believe I was writing another novel. I mean, I had nothing to show for my first one. I, you know, I was not confident and I just thought, I can't believe I'm about to do this, but I, I just couldn't not. And I'm I'm now so happy that it worked out for them to come out quickly close together because I, I think that's sort of a nice thing to have. But there are two more. I've got two novels bubbling in my head that don't seem to go away. And um, so those are still they're kind of always I'm kind of always writing them and have started little bits and pieces. And I think I know the order of them, but I'm not positive. And then um, I am also and this is super long shot, but I'm also um working on the screenplay for Buck's Pantry. So I, um, oh. and I have no idea, but I, I've had so many people tell me it, you know, it, it feels like watching a movie and I know it's super dialogue heavy and super action heavy. And so I just want to do it. I, you know, like I said, super long shot, but um, I can't imagine handing it over into someone else's hands. And I'm really enjoying learning the language of screenplays and all of that. Um, so, so yes, lots more to come. I hope um, at least two it, more that's novels. That's interesting and, about Buck's Pantry and the screenplay because I have had writers on who have sold screenplays, and they have some of them have or wrote the screenplay, but most of them said, "I write novels and short stories. I don't write screenplays." And it's it they they said it required a completely different skill set, which you can see because when you read a novel and when you read a play, it's so wholly, wholly different. But I think you're right. I think Buck's Pantry with all the action going on, um, where um, this one is, you know, is, is very, there's a lot going on in the heads and, <laughs> yes. you know, I know there are sh there's that TV show called In Treatment where, you know, they show sessions with 
uh, psychologists and not real ones, fictional ones. Yeah. But I think I think you're right. And um, so, are you writing the screenplay on spec, or have have you actually sold the novel? Oh no, I haven't sold it at all. So it's just me doing it for. I I sort of feel like the dream is always, you know, someone reads the novel and you know calls you and says, hey, we'd love to make a movie and. I sort of just want to be ready for that. Um, so now I'm doing the screenplay, and it is—it's a completely different. You know, it's a complete—it's like speaking in a different language, and you have to tell the story very differently, um, much more succinctly, and and then in ways that allow you know the other people, the writers, the actors, you know, to to build on it. But I have to tell you, I'm having the best time. Um, it's so much fun. So I, I totally get the decision not to, um, you know, I, I feel sort of the same way about short stories. I can't, my brain doesn't work that way. I've tried and mm -hmm. it just, it, it doesn't. I sort of, I'll have a few, fewer number, but you know, of longer stories. But, um, but yeah, I, the, the screenplay is a completely different animal, but I'm enjoying it. We'll see, <laughs> we'll, we'll see if I, if I can do it or not, but um, I'm having fun um, taking a shot. All right, so you have the potential of two novels and a screenplay. That means yeah. that hopefully I can look forward to you coming back on the show sometime in the next couple of years, which would be great. So well, I'm afraid our, our time is really run, running out. So um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I think um, to have two novels, first of all, to congratulations for having these two novels out in the world, and also um, to be able to talk about two different novels and, and, uh, and share um, how they kind of came about and share the beginnings of your writing career has really been a lot of fun. It's been great talking to you. Well, Eileen, it's lovely to talk to you. You are um, such a gracious host um, and supportive host. And so just thank you for having me and I would absolutely love to come back. Oh, great. Okay, so books to viewers and listeners. Uh, we're at the end and I'm not gonna tell you that the next author, I'll have four books or five books or anything like that. It'll probably be back to one. But I can tell you that um, if, you can, if you look for these two novels, The Action Pack, Buck's Pantry, and the more, I don't know, the more kind of thinking novel, this time it could be different, um, by Kristen Wireman, please uh, Take a look, look for them, support our authors who aren't Stephen King, and, well, you can support him too. And have a good evening.